Morning, church. Good to see everybody. Special welcome to the guests of the those who are dedicating their children this morning. It's fun to have you guys with us, and we're praying that uh, this marks a moment for not only the child and the parents, but for the family as a whole, uh, a moment of building our lives as we just sung upon Christ. Happy Mother's Day. Let me add my happy Mother's Day to, to the moms in the room. Uh, if you're a guest, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here at Glowing Bible Church. It's a privilege to do so and a pleasure, eager to open God's word this morning and share what's on my heart. This morning's sermon is an excellent pairing with child dedication. Our focus is on equipping. Parents are certainly called to equip their kids for life and godliness. And the church is called to help in that effort, to equip parents, to equip, to help quit. We just, in fact, we committed not to bruise their tender lives with harsh words, quick judgments, and unfair criticisms, but to positively impact them. The question that I is uh, front and center for us this morning as we talk about equipping, we sing that we, we want to build our lives on Christ. My question for us is who's helping us do that? That's, that's the outcome. We want to build our life on the rock of Christ. Who's helping us get that done? And what does that entail? Imagine opening your Bible and not simply being able to understand what you read, but also being able to apply it to your life as well as to help others apply it to their, their lives utilizing it effectively and encouraging others with it. This is a part of the purview of equipping. Imagine being able to distinguish right from wrong, but not simply being able to distinguish right from wrong, but actually to be able to consistently choose what is right. This is a part of equipping, according to the book of Hebrews. Imagine praying with greater clarity and greater confidence Words aren't bouncing off the ceiling, that prayer is much more than wishful thinking. Imagine praying with greater clarity and confidence for others and seeing God move in their lives. Imagine serving, not out of duty, but out of delight primarily. And seeing your efforts being used by God to make a difference in other folks' lives. Imagine sharing your faith with others and feeling not simply comfortable in doing so, but competent, effective, and eager to do so. Can't wait to do so. This is a part of equipping. Imagine feeling increasingly content with your financial resources and living within your means while at the same time giving generously and eagerly in order to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. This is a part of equipping. Imagine not only understanding the global mission effort this morning during the prayer call. We have a prayer call every Sunday morning, 745 to 815, love to have you there. Imagine during the... Uh, well, in, in the prayer call, we prayed for a member of our congregation and have been for the last week because they're preaching today in France in French, and it's been a while since he's preached in French. Imagine 
not only understanding the global mission effort, but finding your place in it and contributing to it productively. Being a part of reaching the lost and growing the church globally, fulfilling the Great Commission. Who wouldn't want of experiences? Is my mic coming and going? I'll talk louder. <laughs> Who wouldn't want these types of experiences, right? We're in week three of a four-week series, a short little series, looking at what's the purpose of the church? Why bother? Why are we here? What are we trying to accomplish? Generally speaking, we answer this question by saying, helping people follow Jesus. And we've even stenciled it on the wall out in our welcome center. Welcome. We're a community that's helping people follow Jesus, helping one another follow Jesus. After all, that's what every good evangelical church says they want to do. They want to make disciples. That's folks that are learning from and following after Jesus. How are they made? You know, in the first century world, the disciple-making process was very well known. Simon, Pete, uh, Simon and Andrew, his brother, for example, when they were invited to come by Jesus, follow after him, they dropped their nets, they were fishermen, and they walked off, literally, physically parading around behind him, learning from him as he taught for a three-year window. So complete was a disciple's commitment to their rabbi in the first century that it became the defining element of their person. And in this respect, discipleship hadn't changed in 21 centuries. Jesus is still looking for people to learn from him and emulate his character, conduct, and concerns. He's still looking for people for whom it would be the defining element of their character to be in relationship with him. That's what we're trying to help people do, helping people make Jesus the defining element of who they are. This is our focus because this was Jesus's focus. This is our focus because it was the first disciples, the first 12, it was their focus. This is our focus because it was the early church's focus. Jesus, right before he ascended, right, he was raised, spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God after his resurrection with his followers. Then he ascended into the heavens and they watched him bodily go. He'll return the same way. Here are his last words to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because I've got all authority, go and make disciples. Do this work. Go and make people who the defining element of their life is that they're in relationship with me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. I'm with you in this effort. He's with us this morning in this effort. As we sing, as we dedicate our children, all three of my kids, 25, 23 and 20, all three of them right here on the platform, dedicated. I, every, yeah, it's good memories for me. I'll try not to make it about me, but good memories for me. 21 centuries later, Jesus' followers are still making disciples. What does that look like? Well, in an effort to illustrate our best understanding of what it means to make disciples, we came up with this pretty green target. This was a 30-month effort in the year 2004 and 2005, thereabouts, 
26, that the elders scoured the New Testament trying to define, number one, disciples, and number two, the activities of a church that's actually making disciples. And so when people come to Glowing Bible Church and they were to say, what's the purpose of life? We have the periphery of the, this target, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We stole that. We didn't come up with that ourselves. The first question in this uh, catechism, I think it was written in the 17th century, uh, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy, enjoy him forever. Who most glorifies God and who most enjoys God, our creator, the one who hits the bullseye, one who is a disciple, a follower of, a learner from Jesus. Well, what's a disciple look like? And we came up with eight attributes of a disciple. We say there could be 80, these eight we're sure of. A disciple is one who receives salvation by grace. They're not trying to merit heaven. They're enjoying the gift of God lavished upon them. A disciple is one who worships in life continually, John 4, He's looking for worshipers and the experience of God's grace being received. The response is worship. Last week, Pastor John talked about uh, restoring the broken. We believe the broken are restored through a vertical dependence on the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and, and a horizontal connection with each other. So we proclaim the gospel, salvation by grace, worship in life continually. We restore the broken through a dependence on the Holy Spirit, this vertical and in connection with one another, he gave us to each other for restoration. And then we equip believers. And I wanna talk about equipping believers this morning. We equip believers to do two things primarily, to obey Jesus and to serve Jesus. Frankly, to serve with Jesus. We were served by him and we find service our place of service just as he served us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus about equipping. It's on the screen, Ephesians chapter four. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip. Who? His people. For what? Works of service. So that the body of Christ, here the outcomes of equipping, may be built up. That's a collective building up. Until we reach unity. That's a collective experience. Unity in faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity is not uniformity. We don't all look and behave the same or have the same passions or even callings on our lives but we're unified in faith, and that is in the knowledge of the Son of God, who He is, and we become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, outcomes of being equipped. Let me draw our attention to a couple key insights from these verses. First, in His divine, that is Christ's wisdom and leadership, specifically gave some folks to the church for equipping other folks. Paul lists what have historically been referred to as the fivefold offices of the, of the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. While we don't have time to go into each of these offices, and I would argue that they're not terribly cumbersome to understand. We don't have time to go into it. Suffice to say, there are people in the church who are gifted and called to empower others to live 
lives of service and obedience. The staff, the elders, children's Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, adult ed teachers. These are the ones we're depending on to do the equipping quadrant, teaching us to obey and serve. I should also note something about the word translated as equip. The word translated as equip in verse 12 comes from the Greek word kartatismon, kartatismon, whose root meaning is to repair and was often used to describe things like uh, setting a bone in surgery or mending fishing nets. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, used to describe just that, the mending of nets. In Galatians, chapter 6, verse 1, it's described as restoring broken people. What does it mean to equip? Paul writes in Galatians, brothers and sisters, if someone's caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore, equip, mend, repair that person gently, not harshly, not forcefully, gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. So the picture we are to have in equipping, the equipping the effort, God's people using their gifts and their time to strengthen, mend, repair, and restore one another so that we can better obey and better serve. In some cases, that will mean instruction. Hopefully, you come away today with a, a greater understanding. Uh, and I'm sitting in rows, facing forward and listening. It's primarily going to be a mental affirmation of what God is doing. But hopefully also we have people in our lives that we're watching live out this equipping effort and who are caring for us very personally. Amy read Deuteronomy 6 while on the platform just before dedication. Teach them to obey, or teach them to talk about them, right? The Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Talk about them when you lie down, when you get up, when you're on the road. We need people in our lives that are giving us instruction, that it's relationally based. It may be teaching in this format. It may be prophetic. Maybe someone telling us that it's not going to go well for us if we behave that way any longer. Someone correcting us. In some cases, correction or even prayer is needed, right? Healing prayer for the restoration and the mending. This is more in a, a pastoral setting like small groups. This means that while some may certainly be called to offices of pastor and teacher and evangelist and prophet, everyone actually has a role of equipping. Parents are to be equipping each other, caring for their kids and one another. Paul is very clear in his writings to Pastor Timothy that the older are to be equipping the younger. This not a function of an office or even a gifting, but a function of maturity as the older come along the side of the younger. The idea that we're all to help equip one another is called the priesthood of all believers. 
It's a doctrine that was foundational to the Protestant Reformation. Church reformers in the 1500s saw that the dichotomy between clergy and laity, clergy, professional paid ministers, and laity, volunteer, that that dichotomy was actually undermining us being, uh, becoming mature, becoming uh, built up in the knowledge of the Son of God, the outcomes of equipping. That that dichotomy was, well, we'll leave that for the professional ministers and the laity weren't getting involved. They weren't finding their place. But every believer, according to the New Testament, is called to be a priest, called to find their place within ministries, in the church. In short, figuring out, Figuring out whether or not we fit neatly within the fivefold offices isn't near as important as finding someone to minister to. We each have something to offer. We're each gifted by God in a particular way or ways. Some of us have multiple gifts that we're to be using to strengthen others. And the good news is that maturity is the outcome. Let me read for you a little further in Ephesians. He talks about equipping, and then he talks about the benefits of it. I find these benefits compelling. Ephesians 4, verse 14. So once the equipping process takes place and people are growing up and going on to maturity, he says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. If I had to pick a singular verse to describe what I feel like is going on in popular culture, it is the tossing back and forth, the blowing here and there, by every wind of teaching. In some cases, it's fueled by the cunning and the craftiness of people who are deceitfully scheming for selfish gain. He says, that's no longer going to be our experience. He says, instead, instead, speaking the truth in love to each other, we're going to grow up to become in every respect the mature body that's a experience, the mature body of him who is the head, Christ. He's our head, we're his body, the hands and feet and the arms of Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each does its work. Where are you working for the maturity of the people you're sitting with this morning? Where are you striving? Where are you coming to bear on the equipping effort? Where are you using what you know and what you've learned? Iron sharpens iron, right? We're to spur each other on to love and good deeds. Where Have you found your place in that? Ever walk in the surf? depending on one's size, the waves affect you differently. Little children can't go very far out into the surf until they get knocked down, while adults can wade in much deeper. Maturity matters. 
It brings stability. Those who are mature know how to roll with the waves even, ride out the cultural changes that are coming to America rather than being tossed and knocked on their can. You see many Christians reeling in the surf of popular culture, wringing their hands. And I'm not excited about the cultural changes in America, but God is still on the throne. The spiritual parallel is obvious. In this world, we swim in an ocean of depravity and confusion. One of the primary benefits of being equipped is stability. Maturity brings with it clarity and confidence needed to navigate difficult times. We want to grow up. We want to go on to maturity so that we're knocked, not knocked down by every wave that comes our way. Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Can you picture a toddler in the surf, tossed around? I think of issues in popular culture like abortion, which was further complicated as an issue by a draft opinion from the Supreme Court being leaked this week. <clears throat> you know, the leaking of a drafted opinion on such a pivotal issue strikes me as cunning and crafty, deceitful scheming. I think of the LGBTQ issues and the efforts of local school boards to care for children. I think of issues like race, prison reform, immigration, climate change, poverty, just to name a few. Each of these debates on each of these topics are inevitably impacted by the cunning and craftiness, the deceitful scheming of people who have selfish motives. Which is only to say that sin is at work in the world. What's our hope? Where can we find stability? clarity, confidence, maturity, so that we're not tossed around. Verse 15, we find it from other believers who are speaking the truth in love to us, in relationship. We find it as each part does its work, the close of verse 16, the whole body is joined together builds itself up in love by fixing our eyes on Christ, seeing his love for us, sharing that love with each other. Now, some of you may be thinking, gosh, Kelly, you seem to be oversimplifying the remedy, failing to acknowledge the complexities of the issues that our current culture is facing. Let me give us just one example of why I believe some of us are easily tossed Consider prayer. One activity uh, that I believe the church could, we could grow up in. So let me do my best to speak truth in love. James writes really clearly, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to him. It's really straightforward. But when he asks, he must believe. He must not doubt. Because he who doubts is like, and then he 
he picks up on Paul's description. Anyone who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. <clears throat> I know that some of you know me better than others. I'm not, I, I work really hard to carefully nuance things. So when I threw out <clears throat> hot topics that our culture is battling with, um, I don't mean to paint with a broad brush and say, well, these would be easily addressed. What I mean to do in this case is say, if we were better equipped in prayer, just at the most basic level, we would find that we'd not be tossed by feelings of doubt and fear as we address complex cultural issues. Double-minded literally means, in this passage, James 1, double-souled. As you have one soul that's believing God and asking him for things, he's good, and another soul that's doubting whether or not he's going to give it. And I won't ask for a show of hands how many of us have that posture when we go to prayer. That's the posture that ends up in getting tossed. It's, it's a spiritually schizophrenic posture. And it prevents us from receiving all that God has promised to provide for us, namely, in this case, wisdom, but along with that, love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, all that the, the Spirit longs to bear in our lives, that's the list of the fruit of the Spirit. When we go to God duplicitly with this double-minded posture, he's good and generous, I don't know if he really is, it undermines us receiving and enjoying stability. This type of double-mindedness impacts everything we do as believers. We need to settle whether or not we believe, number one, God is good, and number two, is in control. And our prayer life is a quick indicator of whether or not we believe he's good and in control. I think of activities like volunteering and giving our time away. We'll do that with greater confidence and stability when we believe, according to Ephesians 2.10, that there are actually works prepared in advance for us to do. Do you know that there are works prepared in advance? We're saved by grace through faith, that's Ephesians 2.8 and 9, apart from anything we do, for works prepared in advance. We're not saved for hammocks and margaritas. We're saved to do work. We're saved to be productive. We're saved to equip each other and go on to maturity so that we can enjoy all that God has promised us in Christ. I think of giving our money, settling whether or not God is good and Sovereignly in control will impact how we give, whether or not we give um, eagerly, cheerfully, the biblical word, right? Sacrificially, generously. You know, when the Bible uses the description of you must be born again, it only stands to reason there's going to be a season in which we're infantile. But we need to go on to maturity. We're born again, we're born as children in Christ. 
but we see it lived out in front of us every day. No one wants to stay a child. We're to grow up, we're to go on to maturity. Biologically, the same is true spiritually. Paul wrote about this, brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God's called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are infantile, no, all of us who are mature should take such view of things. What is our view of things? Is it that there are works prepared in advance for us to do? We have a role and a function to play. And however we messed up in times past and sinned, we need to go on to maturity and play the part that we're called to play helping one another obey and serve. Let me pray for us toward that end.